1972, a crack commando unit was sent to a liturgical prison by a canonical court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security diocesan stockade to the ecclesial underground. Today, still wanted by the Vatican, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, then you should listen to Libra Cristo War College. Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Dan Schneider. Today's gospel at Holy Mass, uh, the last verse says a whole lot. It says, much will be required of the person entrusted with much, and still more will be demanded of the person entrusted with more. Well, what the heck does that mean? It's also an eschatological gospel. It's talking about... uh, uh, you must also be prepared for at an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come. The Catholic Church, we've been given the fullness of truth. We've been given the deposit of faith, divine revelation, sacred scripture, sacred tradition. And many people are misusing it, Dan. Even in our church, people in high places are misusing this, uh, this pearl of great price that's been given to us. And that's, uh, that's what we want to talk about today. Again, to much who has been given, much will be expected. I can't imagine the authority, the power, the office that's been given to a pope, a bishop, a cardinal, a, a priest. Uh, they're they're going to have much more at, at, uh, at their exit interview to answer for than you and I, the simple, lowly, little lay people here with a microphone. But before we get into that, I want to ask you a question about, I saw an article about a mom living in a haunted house and she reaches out to the previous owner gets eerie response report and this is in your neck of the woods so i think it'd be interesting for it's just a paragraph let me read it then i want you to comment on it a woman living in a haunted 1920s new mexico home says her cat and son see a haunting presence renee valdez said her her son told her about a man that i see in my room with an old hat that peeks in from the bathroom she told inside edition Valdez reportedly spoke to the previous owner on Facebook who said, oh, I've been expecting you. She's like my son. She's, she's like my son sees a man with a hat and her son described what our, what our son sees. So that was weird and scared the C out of me. Valdez told Inside Edition, Valdez described the list of unusual noises and, and unexplained stuff that she and her girlfriend hear daily. There is an unconnected doorbell that violently dings at night, a basement camera that caught the chairs sliding across the floor, and an Alexa device alerting them about calls ringing from inside the house, she said. However, what freaks her out is her pet's responses. The pets have the most reactions, said Valdez, who specifically mentioned her gray cat, Ruth. Ruth sees things in the bedroom constantly. I mean, they interrupt her. It follows her. It moves around. Valdez told edition, Inside Edition, I mean, she's always seen it and it freaks me out. I don't like her reactions because her ears go back. She's definitely following something that's up there. Valdez, her girlfriend, her son, and the pets still live in the house and plan to stay there with their shadowy roommate. I feel like I'm in its, like I'm in its space more than it, it's in mine or than it's, that it's in mine in a way, Valdez said. Whatever it is, um, it is here before us. They're not bothering us. 
so I'm going to let it go. I kind of love him, she said, like in his own way. He's like, he's like the icing on the cake of the creepy 1920s house that I bought. Well, the first thing I have to say is just from reading the article, these guys are living in fornication. Uh, so they're living in mortal sin, which, which attracts evil spirits. It makes yourself uh, vulnerable to, uh, to diabolical attacks. Dan, this is in your neck of the woods. People talk about haunted houses. We call them diabolical infestation. Uh, there's two types of presence that could be in a house, correct? There could be a demonic presence or there could be a, 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 a wandering spirit or what do they call them? Uh, correct me. What's, what, there you go. Yeah. 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 So you could have two types of presences. You could have an infestation um, of place by a diabolic force um, or you could have a... Um, a, a purgative soul who goes there just if a, a purgative souls are extremely rare um, and you, if they're they're allowed to go by God's providence it's there to ask for prayer normally there's a place where some kind of grave sin took place and so they're, they 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 need the help of the prayers of the mystical body to to pray for them as they're suffering for those sins in purgatory so there'll be a distinct difference between infestation and a purgative soul again um, even St. St. Charles Borromeo in the right, uh, the the tundra, the preamble to the right of exorcism says if a, if a, if a, if a, 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 a if a spirit shows up claiming to be a, a disembodied soul or purgative soul, he said ignore it. It's most likely a trap or a lie. So chances are this is a, this is something diabolic. Um, normally you you can tell by the trigger. It gets better with prayer. Um, when you when you have uh, if it's a purgative soul as you pray or have mass centered lo- location or for the location if you pray the rosary the little um, the the little uh, the, the, the the little office for the dead can be prayed there it's very effective um, but normally it's not that way it's more if it's a diabolic force it's going to be destructive it's not going to respond to prayer um, it's going to get worse with prayer. And so in a case like this, it sounds to me like it's two, you know, uh, um, t- sounds like two women uh, raising this child and the child sees it and the cat sees it, um, but they're cool with it. So what you have in this particular case is probably a case of infestation. It was uh, certainly there beforehand, according to the previous owner. Um, this is why many states uh, in real estate that, that has to be declared um, before, before, you know, before someone sells a house, it's now legal in some states to sell a house that you know that there might be something else present there. And so some, for some reason, there's a demon there, some, some evil took place there. And uh, so the demon's claiming the territory. And the fact that they're not trying to get it out, that they're cool with it, just shows that the, the, the compatibility with it, the demon's going to continue to stay there and continue to molest and, and haunt and, and harass them and take a, every advantage of the permission that they're given there because the demon has no right to be there. He's going to claim a right, but by natural law, the the homeowner has the right to that place. And so if, if the homeowner says, yeah, the demon can stay, well, guess what? He's going to be bringing his buddies in most likely very soon. Wow. Um, you know, Dan, I forget the priest's name, but there was a priest in the Diocese of Phoenix. He just passed away a couple of years ago, but he was, uh, I'm trying to remember his name right now. They called him the purgatory priest. Uh, he uh, apparently he was visited off, very often, uh, and this was under Bishop Olmsted, uh, everybody in the diocese, he had this, uh, I guess, this uh, this ability or, or just souls from purgatory would come and ask him to, to do masses for him. He came. He even came out on EWTN several times. I think Mother Angelica inter- interviewed him, and he just says, yeah, they. I, I don't ask for it. They just come and visit me, and uh, I do a mass for them, and uh, they never come back. <laughs> so uh, 
yeah, here in Phoenix, there was there was this one priest that was that was very um, he was known for that, and he was very unassuming. He wasn't out there, you know, trying to get fanfare and trying to do interviews. He was very quiet and unassuming, just a holy a holy parish priest that pretty much all the priests in the diocese knew. Yeah, that priest gets visited by souls in purgatory. And they ask him to do masses, and he does requiem masses, and they leave. They 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 don't come back to the houses. So, uh, so Dan, I want to talk now about. I want to move to another topic. This is going to be the bulk of the show, and uh, I, I want to set it up. That by, just by, by, the point. Yeah. Having masses said is very critical for the for the, we we've lost that in the modern church. You know, when someone dies. We automatically canonize them or we, we give them a, a physiological and ontological um, impossibility. We make them an angel. You know, grandma now is my angel watching over me. <laughs> that is simply not true. Um, and, and there's a very good chance as holy as the person was, they still need our prayers. Unless until they're declared a saint by the Roman Catholic Church and, and right authority of the church, they, we need to continue to say mass, have masses said for them and pray for them. Think about the, uh, the origins of the Gregorian Mass. And, and if you remember the origins, I've heard you speak on it at a conference as well. And in those origins, the, 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 the monk that was suffering and asking for intercessory prayer wasn't because he was an evil monk. It's just because when they built the new monastery, he, he hooked himself up with a couple extra niceties for his particular cell. Um, so um, and, and that's why he was suffering in purgatory, asking for prayers. And so um, the souls in purgatory are suffering until every last farthing is paid, so to speak, from Scripture. And so it, it's 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 laudable. It's and it's and it's um, laudatory for us to pray for the souls in purgatory on a regular basis as someday we're going to be there, hopefully. And uh, and we will be asking for help for our own suffering as well. If you really think you Catholics say, oh, I just kind of hope I can make it into purgatory. You need to read Hungry Souls. Have you read that book, Jess? Hungry Souls. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a. It is, I, it is, I interviewed the author too. Yeah. This, yeah. That'll scare the hell out of you. Literally. <laughs> I mean that 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 book will make you realize that purgatory is 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 quite the torment, according to Saint Thomas. Um, the two pains, the pain of sense and the pain of loss, are experienced there to a deep degree, uh, and largely because we cannot. Um, we, we do not have the filter of the body to offer, so we're just passively suffering in purgatory. And so praying for the souls in purgatory is very important. But also not accepting given permissions, um, you know, thinking it's cute. You know, we're living in this time where Halloween is now the weirdest time of the year. I hate this month now because everywhere you go, it's just Freddy Krueger and, 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 you know, Scream and all this other horrible stuff. You see otherwise normal Catholics or Christians and they decorate their backyard with, you know, some of the most macabre images that you could possibly get. We've become obsessed with death. We kind of laugh off death, uh, and we 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 actually um, immortalize death, and we make it something uh, that is that is something good, um, and, and and that we shouldn't be afraid of. And you shouldn't be afraid of death if you're in a state of grace and you have a, and you and and you love Jesus and you're living your life for Jesus. You shouldn't be afraid of death. But to mock death and, and to and to embrace it in this macabre, dark way, it's it's kind of a sign of the sickness in our own culture that our obsession with Halloween and ghosts and these other things. Yeah, you're right, Dan. And and Halloween should be a time when we when we uh, try to evangelize even more, uh, because I can tell you, uh, Satanists they claim that day for their own, it's in their own calendar, October 31st. You got Satanists and witches. They claim that as one of their high holy days. Absolutely. You're listening to Wednesday War College. Just remember Dan Schneider. We're going to talk about the uh, this uh, women being ordained as deacons. Are you kidding me? Let's talk about that.
Wednesday War College. Yeah, Dan, yeah, Halloween's right around the corner as well. And, uh, you know, there have been some, some giants in the Catholic Church that have mentioned uh, some things about Halloween. I'm trying to find it right here. Pope Benedict XVI, he actually said something about Halloween years ago. Um, Pope Benedict XVI says this, Halloween is dangerous. Uh, Pope Benedict slams Halloween as an anti-Christian festival. Uh, Pope Benedict yesterday said, this was back in 2009, he branded Halloween as anti-Christian and dangerous. The condemnation follows criticism from Catholic bishops who this week urged their parents not to let their children dress up as ghosts and goblins. I also have a, there's also another, Father Gabriel Lamorth, celebrating Halloween is like celebrating the devil. There's a longer paragraph. Uh, you also have Father, uh, how do you pronounce that? Bonanto, Bonatti, the, the head exorcist of uh, the Catholic Church right now. Uh, Father, Father Aldo Bonato, he also says, uh, he warns parents of the dangers to children and said the events that the Halloween promote, promotes the culture of death. He says Halloween pushes new generations towards the mentality of esoteric magic. Yeah, I have a whole word file here of, uh, of very orthodox prelates that are warning us about the dangers of Halloween. Archbishop Cardinal Norberto Rivera, he says, Halloween has nothing to do with the celebration that gave it birth. Halloween is harmful and contrary to the Catholic faith and to the Christian life. He's the top cardinal in Mexico. Father Fortea says the same thing. Uh, he says... Uh, uh, the the uh, the celebration of Halloween one century ago was very naive. It was a question of costumes, some candles, something very similar, and little communities that wanted children to enjoy a very healthy way. Unfortunately, in the last 15 to 20 years, the celebration has become more and more esoteric or oriented towards the occult. Costumes really are, are, really are very bloody. Something that is disgusting is not beautiful for the children to have a fun time. It's something horrible and in very bad taste to see children in that way. So yeah, Dan, you got some giants here that are that are saying that Halloween now, what it's morphed into, it's not what probably something that you and I experienced, you know, when we were kids, you know, 60, 50, 60 years ago. It's it's a different animal now. Yeah, yeah. You you back there, you dress as a hobo. You put on your yeah. dad military. I was uniform. like a hobo every year. I was a hobo every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would put on my dad's <laughs> my dad's uh, Air Force uniform. Uh, Hobo, cowboy, you know, you go as a cowboy. Uh, hobo was always a, a fan favorite. Uh, a, a young lady would go put in her mom's clothes and try to dress as an old woman. I mean, it was very innocent, you know, and it, it, it was anticipatory. It was All Hallows Eve. It was anticipatory. It was All Souls Day um, and anticipatory for All Saints Day. And we've again, like everything else, we've detached the, the, the Christian meaning behind these things. And now the enemy has come in and usurped them in our culture as, as this embrace, embracing of the occult. It's no longer just embracing of darkness. It's embracing of murder, mass murder movies, uh, horror culture, and, uh, and within that, the occult. I know in El Paso, Texas, um, I think this week or next week, they're having a, 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 um, a meeting of all their a conference uh, uh, for witches in the area to come together and, you know, teach each other how to do their, their dark crafts. And this stuff is very real, it's very serious. And we, the Christians need to wake up and realize this is the culture that we now find ourselves in. We find ourselves behind enemy lines very quickly. So we have to, we have to learn how to pray and learn how to live our Catholic faith in a truly authentic way. Yeah. I don't remember when I was a kid, you know, 
uh, 50, 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago when we were a teenager, I don't remember the houses being adorned, many houses so dark with, uh, you know, headstones in, 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 in the front yard and, and skeletons hanging by the neck on trees and witches in brooms uh, and gargoyles. The things that I see now in people's houses, I'm like, where did you buy that? You know, where do they sell this dark paraphernalia? I didn't see that when I was a kid in my neighborhood over in, in the Los Angeles County. Uh, but th- yeah, things have just gotten, uh, I would just say that the devil has doubled down and he feels very comfortable now, uh, basically showing his cards on Halloween. So speaking about Halloween, talking about something scary, something scary is happening over in this, the synod and sin. Let me, let me mention one topic that's front and center. It's the ordination of women. I'm looking at this one, uh, this one news uh, from Gloria TV, this one news post. It says, drafter of ex-synod document says, glad to see women invalidly ordained. Uh, Sandburst Bishop Shane McKinley, one of the 13 drafters of the ex-synod's final document, is glad that invalid female ordinations are are being addressed. Uh, the bishop said, if it were to be that if it were to be that the outcome was for ordination to the diaconate to be open to women, I'd certainly welcome that. He enthused. This is a Catholic bishop, by the way. But women's ordination is just a diversionary tactic to distract from the real aim of the ex of the ex synod, the promotion of homosexual sins. Bishop McKinley claimed that the talks at the ex synod on homose- on homosexuality dealt with church teaching. But there was also insights into very personal experience and personal encounters. And that was very, very warmly received by the homosexualist assembly. And there's a picture there. It's got a bunch of bishops and prelates in a room at the synod. And the devil just gets off the stage. And the devil just finished giving giving them a lecture. And it says, I need to go home. It's just too dang hot in there. Here's a here's another post that I want to share. This was this is on X. This is by Heidi Schlump, world's foremost scholar on women's deacons, responds to news that one synod participant says that the synod is discussing how more theological consideration is needed on the issue. Also another post on X from Phyllis Zagano. The work has been done and the topic has been discussed for 50 years. The ITC found in favor of women deacons in 1997, but the president, Cardinal Ratzinger, refuses to promulgate the findings. So this has been in the works for many years, Dan. Yeah. And and here's another. Uh, this is this is the longer article, but I'll just give you the, the high points, and I want to I want to have a conversation on this. I want to go through the history of this with you, Dan. This article is a. Uh, it's called a exclusive bishop on synod drafting committee expresses openness to women deacons. So I'll, I'll just read some of the high points here. It says one of the 13 members of the committee expected to draft the hotly anticipated final document from Pope Francis ongoing Vatican summit on the future of the Catholic church has expressed an openness toward dating Catholic women as, as Catholic deacons. In an exclusive interview with National Catholic Reporter, uh, 
Australian Bishop Shane McKinley, elected to the committee rolled by his peers at the October 4th to 29th Synod of Bishops, said of discussions about women's ordination, quote, I'm glad that it's being addressed, close quote. Noting that the possibility of ordaining women as Catholic deacons is mentioned in the Synod's working document, <coughs> Bishop McKinley said the issue was included because there was such a wide representation of people who brought it up during the two-year consultative process ahead of the Vatican Assembly. Here's what he says again, Bishop McKinley. I'm glad it's here. I'm glad it's going to be discussed. And if it were to be that the outcome was for ordination to the diaconate to be open to women, I'd certainly welcome that. Bishop McKinley, who's, who's led the Diocese of Sandburst, Australia, since 2019, he was also the Vice President of Australia's Fifth Plenary, uh, Fifth Plenary Council, he also spoke about the lessons he drew from the experience. He says, I've kept an eye on what they're uncomfortable on what they're comfortable in talking about at the briefings, and I think they've pitched that well in terms of talking generally around the issues rather than talking specifically about what anybody's saying. Certainly, Bishop McKinley says, the man of the left, he says, there was, as you as you'd anticipate, very clear reaffirmations of the importance of the church's doctrine and teachings, but there were also great insights into personal experience and personal encounter. I got to put on my homosexual voice. Personal <laughs> encounter and the journey of conversion that some members had undertaken, affirming just how critical that personal encounter pastoral care and genuine Christian response to individuals is. And certainly that was very, very warm, warmly received by the assembly. The bishop says, what we're seeking at this point, particularly in the first assembly and in the methodology of the, con con here it is. Look at the, ver the words they use. I love it. Conversations in the spirit. In the spirit. Is that there's, yeah. Is that there is space for everyone to be heard. So Dan, Here's the two, here's the two phrases that they keep using at what I would call Vatican III. Because when you look at the word synod, just 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 go to the dictionary, dictionary.com, look at the word synod, and it means council. Council means synod. It's like car and auto, auto and car, they're synonyms. Synod and council are synonyms. This is Vatican III. And you know what they're using? They're using these ambiguous terms saying conversations in the spirit or the God of surprises. Why? Because these modernists have contempt for the deposit of faith. They only appeal to what they call the current magisterium. And they know that they, they didn't get what they wanted entirely at Vatican II. And this is the icing on the cake. This completes their agenda, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you begin? I mean, how do you even begin to critique a synod so-called that begins with an exhortation by a, by a, um, a, uh, um, a Dominican so-called named Father Radcliffe that, that appeals that we need to have compassion for all those who have no voice in the church, including polygamists? What you're, I mean, it's, it's absurd. And then another presentation by, a, by another uh, a prelate 
that says that we have to have compassion. God has compassion on demons and that even demons will be recapitulated and taken up into heaven at the end of time because they're all part of God's loving love and care of the, for stewardship of all creation, which is an absolute heresy denounced. It's called originism. It was denounced in the fourth century or fifth century um, um, by several councils of the church. This is these, They're putting forth these things as a total break from the deposit of faith. What you're seeing at work here, Jesse, and I think we can get into the ordination of, 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 deacon, of deaconesses in a minute. We can look at it through scripture and in what the church has said. This isn't our first go around in these things. This things have, these things have been spoken of in the early church in the third, fourth, and fifth century, going all the way back to the, finding its roots in sacred scripture. But what we're seeing is a movement of process theology. Process theology, basically, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, it's it's a pantheistic understanding of the faith that everything gets taken up into God. God's perfection is seen in the evolution and creativity of living beings. God is dualistic. He's free and unfree, conscious, unconscious, eternal, temporal, and he's evolving over time. Uh, and, and, and so... Hold that and, thought, Dan. Hold that thought. We're yeah, going to a heartbreak. Okay. We'll be right back. Wednesday War College. Stick around. Wednesday War College, we find ourselves in the midst of diabolical disorientation right now in the Synod of Synodality. There are the two terms that are being bandied about to try to ram through the ordination of, of a Catholic women to the office of deacon is we have to have conversations in the spirit, whatever that means, and it's we uh, we serve the God of surprises, and, and by the way, that God of surprises I don't find it anywhere in Scripture and tradition. I've never heard of, of that uh, way of describing God. But Dan, what's inherently wrong with what they're trying to do at this synod with this or- ordination of women to deep in the Book of Romans? I think it's chapter fifteen. There is a word that's used there to describe a female in the New Testament. As a deaconess, so yeah. I guess some people would argue there is a biblical precedent for this office. Do you have that verse in front of you? Can you read it? And can you? Uh, yeah. um, it's uh, uh, Romans sixteen one. Phoebe, our sister, who is also a minister of the church of Kencre. Um In the Greek, they use this diakonon, tas ecclesia. So uh, a diakonos is a servant. So whenever you doubt what the Greek means, go to St. Jerome and see what the Vulgate says, because Jerome is the uber-literalist. He will, he, will, he will always bring you to a liberal interpretation. So Clementine Vulgate says, Quaest in ministerio ecclesiae, um, she who is in the action of service, the instrument of service, ministre, doesn't use diaconisa, because at this time there was no such a phrase, there was no such order of female deacons. Um, and the Clementine, or the, uh, the New Vulgate, Quae est ministra ecclesiae, who is a servant of, someone who works in the service of. So uh, anything from vacuuming the church to bringing communion to this, uh, or not bringing communion, but to visit the sick, uh, homebound visits, uh, uh, you know, uh, all, uh, bringing food to the poor, poor women, service to women done by women in the early church. So this is someone who did acts of service, has nothing to do with the office of deacon. But that's the first thing they throw out. The second one they throw out is, is 1 Timothy 3. 
Um, similarly, women, uh, the person that lays out, says similarly deacons must be dignified, not deceitful, not addicted to drink, not greedy for sordid gain, holding fast to the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. Moreover, they should be tested first. Then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Women similarly should be dignified, uh, not slanderers, but temperance and faithful. So in the footnote of the New American, it says, this seems to refer to women deacons, but may mean the wives of deacons. The former is preferred because the word here is used absolutely. If deacons' wives were meant, the progressive, the possessive there would be expected. Moreover, uh, they are introduced by the word similarly, as in the verse Verse 8, this parallel suggests they too exercise ecclesiastical functions. Again, this is somebody who is doing a translation with a political agenda, with a, a, an agenda in mind. What this means, uh, the women, it says, by the way, it's in the accusative plural, which means it's the object. It's not used, it's, it's not used absolutely just because it doesn't have an article. Greek is Greek's a funny language. This is why we have to go to the Latin for clear translation sometimes. It means the men... Uh, having wives, because not every deacon was married, even today, the men having wives, similarly, just as there are qualities of holiness to be a deacon, if the ones that have wives, the wives should have similar qualities. This is all that St. Tim- that St. Paul is telling Timothy. He's not going into uh, a treatise. Later, it says that the translation, deacons may be married only once. Interesting, because that's not what the Greek says. It, or the Latin, it says they must be men of one wife, which is mm-hmm. part of the tradition of the church, men of one wife. That if you, if the, all the married deacons out there, which is a new new thing coming out of the Second Vatican Council, all the married deacons out there, if their wives pass away, um, they they cannot remarry. In the Eastern Church, if you if if you get married, if you're if you're married uh, when you get when you get ordained after ordination, if your wife dies, you cannot remarry. Um, so this is an ancient tradition of the church. Um, so to argue because there is no article, um, the or there or possessive, it's very dangerous because it's not telling you um, that there should be women deacons. What the Greek is actually saying this is the quality of the wives of the men who are ordained deacons. Remember back in Acts 6, 3, Acts 6, 3 brothers, select from you seven reputable men. Seven reputable men. And I, I could go on and on and give you a, a, a little grammatical lesson and all the errors of that assertion and that one footnote. But I can tell you that the tradition of the church has always been going back to Scripture um, that that it, from the beginning has been held as the all-male ordained priesthood. But again, the, the, the participants and the organizers of the synod, they care not for tradition. They care not for the deposit of faith. In fact, they don't want to use that word. The deposit of faith is a dirty, nasty phrase to the progressive theologian and prelate because they don't want to hear that we stand on the shoulders of giant giants, that these things have been hashed out from the early church, from the beginning. And we and what they're trying to do is just give us a total, complete break. Again, it's process theology. Let me give you an example. This is from Father Hardin's book, um, The Modern Catholic Dictionary. A view of reality of what Christianity call of what Christianity calls God, which sees everything still in the process of becoming what it will be, not what it really is. It is called theology because it's a form of evolutionary pantheism, which postulates a finite God who is becoming perfect, but not as the Christian believes, an infinite and all-perfect God from eternity. It's called process because it claims that the universe, including God, is moving towards completion. Without identifying what this completion is or when or whether it will be reached, 
on these terms, there is nothing stable, nothing certain, because nothing really is. That sound familiar? It's going all the way back to, to William Aukin in, in the 12th century, the foundation of nominalism, which brought about the Protestant revolt and Lutheranism, that everything is truth in name only. Philosophy is called immanentism. These are ancient heresies that are being espoused here, and they have, they have ancient heretical beliefs. It goes all the way back. To, to ancient times in, in the fissure of the church, and it's resurfacing again today. There is no thing, since people call things are moving functions that keep changing to their very being. Everything, including thinking mind, is ever becoming what it was not and ceasing to be what it is. This is, this is process theology. Here's what it sounds like in practicality. A cardinal named, uh, named Roche from England, who's a prefect for the, the, the Congregation for the Worship of the Sacraments, was asked, why does this pontificate think it can suppress the Latin mass? His answer, quite simply, theology changes. That was his answer. So this that's, is the mindset that's process of those theology. that are that's, Yeah, that's process, that's process theology. theology. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. this, is, this Dan, is what's happening. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm wondering why they didn't invite you. You would have just cleared yeah. this thing up in <laughs> 10 minutes. Had you been there, you would have taken, you would have got a chalkboard like Fulton Sheen and, and a chalk, and you would have taken all of them to school in 10 or 15 minutes, and you would have settled this whole debate. Uh, I, I can't believe they didn't have anybody like you there uh, defending the deposit of faith. Again, because they have an agenda. And, and, and they're only giving people on, on, on the side of orthodoxy. You know how much they're giving them to speak? Three minutes. You got three minutes to say your piece, and that's it. Shut up and sit down. But the, the fact that they've invoked the papal secret, the papal secrecy, is is telling. You're not allowed under under punishment, canonical punishment, to speak of what's going on in the Senate. I mean, that should tell us something. Again, this is Stalinistic tactics all over again. What we're seeing is Stalinistic tactics applied to the church. Let's just call it what it is. I mean, I see you're smiling over it because you like it when I when I get a little fired up. But this is a, <laughs> this is nonsense, Jess. You know it is. <laughs> and the thing is, the world knows that the church is watching. They're like, yeah, whatever, you know. That we have two major world wars going. I mean, I mean, wars yeah. going on. Yes, we're crumbling mor- morally. There's, there's the, the the church is in a nosedive in many countries, and we're arguing over these old settled debates. It, it, it's silliness that we're actually that we're actually having these discussions, and it, it, it's mind boggling. But you're right. I never got the invite. Maybe I, I went to my junk folder. Yeah, look at it. It like it's like this, Dan. The house is burning, and we're in the backyard watering the corn because uh, you know the corn's kind of hot. We want to make sure it's. But the house is on fire. That we got two wars. We we're, got. We're, we're in the middle of a war, right? We're taking, and the enemy's inside the wire. We're taking artillery. And the commander comes over and says, "I want to block her box and boot sign inspection, um, sir." Um, the enemy's inside the wire. We've lost two thirds of our men. We're down to uh, 10% ammunition and, uh, we're surrounded by the enemy. Doggone it. I told you fall in. I want everybody's boots signed. You know, it makes, it's absurd. <laughs> we're in a battle, cultural and ecclesial battle. And this is, this is what we're doing. If God you look at the other church, us. let me throw yeah. a couple more things out. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, let me ask you a question. It, you, you did a masterful uh, explanation from scripture. Are there councils that have weighed in on this? On this, yeah, topic? this is our first rodeo, so to speak, right? To quote Kyle Clement, it's the same old shoot 'em up. Here's a couple of quotes from tradition 
Um, the Council of Nicaea, 3, 325, do not receive any imposition of hands so that are in all respect numbered among the laity. Apostolic Constitution, 375 AD, a deaconess does not bless or perform anything belonging to the office of presbyters or deacons. She just takes care of the doors and ministers when women are baptized for the sake of propriety. Explain yeah, guess that. What? Explain that. We wouldn't be upset about baptisms during mass if you had uh, young women there being baptized naked. Right. Which is what they did in the early church. So they had to cover them. They had to have propriety to cover when you baptize immersion style naked. A woman had to be present. These were the ones that were ministra. Right. The Greek word diakonisa. These were women who served in the church who helped provide. Oftentimes it was the wives of the deacons who did this because they had been tested with their husband before his ordination. As, as the, the duties of deacons, deaconesses, according to this apostolic constitutions, choose only deaconesses, a faithful, holy woman for the ministry of women. For we need a female deaconess for many things. First, when women are baptized, the deacon only anoints, therefore, the head with holy oil. And after, the deaconess spreads it on them. For it is not proper that women be seen by men. There you go. St. Epiphanius, doctor of the church against the heresies. 374. AD. Although there is an order of deaconesses in the church, they are not appointed to function as priest or for any administration of this kind, but so that provision may be made for the propriety of the female sex. Council of Laodicea 372. It is not right for women to have access to the altar. First Council of Orange. We'll come back to that one. That's hold that thought, Dan. Hold that thought. We'll be right back Wednesday college talking about the synod on silliness. We'll be right back. Wednesday War College, just remember Dan Schneider talking about the Senate Drafting Committee expressing its openness to women's deacons. And, and Dan, the person that they have that heads this, uh, that's, that's heading the Senate is uh, Father Timothy Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done some research on him. Open. He's the one that wants to be open to uh, polygamists as well. We have to hear the, what the polygamists have to say. Yes. Look it up. It's straight out of his first conference that he gave in a retreat, the pre-retreat for the for the participants of the synod. Yeah, he's a classic modernist. He's a, he's a prominent, notorious pro-LGBT priest. Uh, he also he says that women suffer from patriarchy. He said in one of his lectures that, that women suffer from from patriarchy, and and I would also say that he suffers from the white guilt propaganda. Look at what he said in this one interview. Okay. Father, T- this is the one that's heading this 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 commission. He was interviewed on October first, uh, and his first meditation at the retreat on the synod. He said this, and this is a guy that's in charge. He goes, "quote I'm deeply aware of my personal limitations. I'm old, white, Western, and a man, and I don't know which is worse." All these aspects of my identity of, of my identity limit my understanding. So I ask your forgiveness for the inadequacy of my words. Close quote. Dan, this is classic modernist 
white guilt rhetoric. This priest has been brainwashed by the spirit of this age. He has bought into all the lies of the left. This is the equivalent of kneeling down before a Black Lives Matter flag. And this guy is the... yeah. yeah. The Dominican order needs to get their money back forever they sent this guy to get educated because it's it's, it's absurd. It's absurd to, to apologize for for uh, he should apologize for a lot things a lot different than that. Let me he go should back. apologize for being pro homosexual. He should apologize, apologize for defending yeah. the Roman Catholic faith. He should apologize to St. Thomas for professing heresy. He should apologize to all the great martyrs, <laughs> Dominican martyrs and saints. He should apologize to all of those. I apologize that I don't live heroic virtue. I apologize that I no longer hold to the to the to the 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 the, the, the model of the, the of a Dominican order, veritas, truth. Truth, right? That's what they believe. That's the model. All right, let me go back that, to the That's what he should apologize for. I apologize that we no longer hold to the truth, that, that the truth is on a process of ev- evolutionary process of change, and we no longer listen to the voice of the past. But this is another voice of the path. Ready, past. Ready, Jess? Yes. Council of Orange, 441. Deaconesses are certainly not to be ordained, and if there are some present, they must bow their head under the blessing given to the people. There is never in the history of the church uh, a ceremony where the threefold office of orders, where sacramental grace is conferred to, to women. Never. And here's what it says in the catechism. Well, first, let's go back to the Second Vatican Council, and we can get back to our buddy, the Dominican. At the lower level of the hierarchy, Lumen Gentium number 20, as to be found deacons who receive the imposition of hands, not into the priesthood, but to the ministry. So they receive the imposition of hands, and it's a valid ordination. It will be... Um, and then it opens up the possibility for the, the permanent diaconate to confer this diaconal order on married men. It is also suitable for young men for whom, however, the law of celibacy must remain in force. There's a whole other debate right there. The leading candidates in the United States sent out an article about 10 years ago stating that the, the law for celibacy for men for, as, as proper to the ordained state has not been abrogated and cannot be abrogated without a change in canon law. That's a whole other debate. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, only a baptized man, vir in Latin, validly receives sacred ordination, and the ordination of women is not possible. Since the begin- That's Catechism 1577. 1593, since the beginning, the ordained ministry has been conferred and exercised in three degrees, bishops, presbyters, and deacons. All right. So, so um, since the Second Vatican Council, 1571 of the Catechism, the Latin Church has restored the diaconate as proper and impermanent rank of the hierarchy. This permanent diaconate, which can be conferred on married men, constitutes an important enrichment for the Church's mission. Uh, it is indeed appropriate and useful that men who carry out a truly diaconal ministry of the Church. Um, Anyway, so so we, we see we see this uh, very clearly in tradition. But again, if 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 you believe in this process theology and you've been imbued in this, you've been learning it, uh, taught this, and this is your whole foundation of theology. Theology changes. Why not? Why not confer? I read an academic article once, and and, and here's what the abstract said: um, As everybody knows, gender is a social construct, right? I'm like, really. I didn't know that. I thought gender was something dictated by natural law. So, but this is the mindset of the mo- of many of these modern uh, bishops and prelates and many many Catholic theologians. 
that gender is a social construct. Whether we ordain women or not is a social construct. All we got to do is get enough people to vote in our direction and we can just change doctrine. There's no such thing as the deposit of faith. This is very critical for Catholics today to embrace and go back to the deposit of faith and not fall into these these current lies, which is what they are. Dan, Cardinal Mueller, a while back ago, uh, he made a, a statement, and it's, uh, I mean, you see it right now, it's in living color. Uh, he said, many Catholic, uh, many Catholic prelates, he says, are malformed, have been, fo- have, have been poorly formed in theology. Uh, as I hear him say that, I'm like saying, wow, spot on. Uh, he's not the only one that said that. Cardinal Ratzinger, back in the 60s, he said something similar in one of his books. I'm trying to remember which one. He said, uh, many prelates today are malformed in theology. So Cardinal Ratzinger said that in the 70s. Uh, and Cardinal Mueller said that about uh, probably about six months ago. Came out on LifeSite News. I would have to agree with that. I mean, you got two giants that were former uh, CDF, uh, prefects of the CDF, that are looking at the state of the church and saying, yeah, many of my brother bishops and priests don't have been improperly pro- formed in theology. Right. We, we, we're, we're, we're given modern theology and not allowing the voice of tradition to speak. And if, again, you look at the chain of tradition, you look how we move from Scripture into the early church and the early doctrinal formation when these, these things were debated, these things were hashed out. There's a reason this came up in these various councils and apostolic constitutions in the early church, because these things were debated and settled. But now that we've got into the modern age, what is modernism but the summation of all heresies, right, according to St. Pius X? And so part of the marks of modernism is this rupture. Benedict was, was, was it was, it was, Really, one of the one of the most brilliant things that his brilliant mind ever said was that we must embrace a hermeneutic of continuity and not one of rupture. And so, what we see in the modern church is, well, we have the Second Vatican Council, and we everything preconciliar is different than the council. We have to live in the spirit of the council. I don't deny the council, the validity of the council, but I read the council in light of the other thirty-two councils in the history of the church. We have to read it. And in, in its continuous form, this ecumenical council, not a dogmatic council, okay? And so we have to see it for what it is in its form. But the modern mind, the modern, many modern theologians and priests are formed thinking we this is the new theology and not going back to the tradition of the church, going deep into the writings of the of the of the early church fathers. What did they say? Tank Thomas and the scholastic. We live in we live in a time where there's been a complete hermeneutic of rupture. And, and this is, you want to see the, the rotten fruit of rupture, look at what's being proposed at this synod. I just found the quote that I was, uh, that I was talking about in, with Cardinal Mueller, September 14th, uh, 2023. He said, he said that today there's a lack of basic theological education, even among the bishops. I'll yeah. say it again. Wow. Today, there's a a lack of basic theological education, even among the bishops. That was said September of this year by Cardinal Gerhard Mueller. Yeah, here's Richard over at the studio sent sent us this. He said he researched God of Surprises, and it came from the book of a Jesuit um, named Gerard Hughes. Uh, In the obituary about about this Jesuit who came up with this phrase, God of Surprises, 
His winning ability was to see God in everyday life was complemented by his refusal to be bound by dogma or denomination. Interesting. The God of surprises. Wow. Right. Wow. By somebody who refuses to be bound by dogma or denomination. And you're looking at a synod of, uh, of being hosted and, and pushed by, by some in the church that refuse to be limited, so-called, by dogma. Dogma is liberating, Jesse. It's liberating to know dogma. The light of dogma reveals to us how we live our, our Catholic faith. And so to be to, to claim to be limited by dogma is, is just, that's a, that is actually a Luciferian claim right there. Dan, it's just like, I find it liberating that there's stop signs, there's red lights, there's, you know, 60 miles an hour, enter here, exit there, uh, don't make a U-turn. That's liberating. That, 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 stop, that stops cars from piling up and from yeah. endless traffic jams and, and, and deaths. On, that's liberating yeah. to have you know, that type of order. When I, was a, when, I was a, when I was a pilot, you know what else was liberating? To be flying in a storm, trying to find my way back. And in and, and, and the clouds and the aircraft is being thrown around and you're this close from one mistake that will cause you death. And all of a sudden you punch out of the clouds on your descent and you see the runway lights. And it's like, yes. I don't want to be bound by runway lights. I don't want to be bound by what the air traffic control tells me what to do. Listen to the childishness of that. Let the lights guide you home. This is what authentic magisterium does and the hard edges uh, 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 that give that give uh, uh, voice to tradition so that we can see clearly and make it make it home. It's runway lights. It's it's street lights. Right. It's 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 these. This is what dogma is for us. And we live in a time where, it's, again, it's Luciferian, right? We say that, yeah. you know, it's just a little child that says, you're not the boss of me, okay? You're not the boss of me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Don't tell, don't, yeah, it's like my, uh, I've heard kids say in their small, don't tell that to me. <laughs> don't tell it to me. You're not the boss of me. Don't tell that to me. Then, <laughs> <laughs> then the, the synods claim to be a listening session, but the only people that Rome is listening to are liberal, woke, heterodox Catholics. Okay, like Whoopi Whoopi Goldberg went to go meet with the Pope the other day. Whoopi Goldberg from The View out of Hollywood for being an anti an anti Semite, and she's (laughs) bragged about her six or eight abortions, whatever she had. Yeah, she gets five divorces. Yeah, she met with the Pope, and uh, she told him she congratulated the Pope and uh, told him she's glad that the Latin Mass is scrapped. God help us. We better listen to Whoopi. Yes, the Prophet. Hey, uh, that's a wrap. That's a wrap, family. You've been listening. (laughs) You've been listening to Wednesday War College. Uh, We're here every single Wednesday with the guys from Liber Cursor. We'll see you next week. Same Christ time, same Christ channel. Up next, you'll hear more from Gary Machuda, Hands On Apologetics, coming to you from the Midwest Command Center. Remember, we're called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. See you next time.